Or just do that weird post-poo bam around the house. <laughs> yeah. Like you... a whirling dervish. You feel like cat owners will understand the post-poo bam. Mm. Interestingly, now I've just said whirling dervish, do you know what a whirling dervish is? It's a person. It is! Oh, I thought I was going to blow your mind with a bit of fact, but you already knew it. They were... Of you did, clever dick. Yeah, they were a type of warrior, I believe. Yes, they were called a whirling dervish. And that's Look what it up. They did. It's quite funny, actually. Because they, they did have, it was like spike balls on chains, didn't they? Yeah, and they had like armour when they spun out spun around it like stuck out yeah yeah they're very fun and they were called the whirling dervishes it's very interesting mm. where did you come across that factoid um <coughs> probably instagram yeah <coughs> all the knowledge you ever need instagram yo yeah yeah hey up i'm joe heathcote and this is consistently eccentric a british history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced So let's get started with... This story begins in the Victorian era. Don't like Victoria, but go on. Emily Wilding Davison was born on October the 11th, 1872, which I feel is a good day to be born, Mm -hmm. October the 11th. As it is your birthday. It gives birth to strong people. And ten days after mine. It gives birth to strong people, is what I'm saying. Mm. Unlike me, she was born in Greenwich where her parents had settled after moving south from Northumbria. They had moved because her father, Charles, he'd been a merchant who'd realised that importing and exporting goods was much easier from the well-appointed docks in London than it was from the little market town of Morpeth, where he'd been living previously. All right. Yeah, so he'd lived in a nice little idyllic market town, but there's there's a limit to the scope that you can do as a trader. I think I've been there. Uh, the it's local population now is, in the local areas around a thousand so mm. you know you've got you've got uh, a ceiling there to the amount of wheeler dealering you can do mm-hmm. he wanted to go to london and become a spiv. <sighs> spiv he come to this revelation when he noticed that the river thames tends to get a bit more traffic than the river wandsbeck all right mm. somewhere Just in the region bit. of a couple of hundred thousand ton more traffic yeah but while definitely an astute businessman emily's father was a man first and foremost and <laughs> As he was in the middle of his mid... As he was in the middle of his... And as he was in his mid-40s... The middle of his mid-40s. The middle of his (laughs) mid-40s. As he was in his mid-40s, he was naturally deep in the middle of a midlife crisis. There's a lot of middle in here. Deep, deep, deep middling of a midlife middle middle Right at the time she was born, he was so deep in it. He was wading at least chest high. Well, let's just see. It wouldn't be motorbikes. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be fast cars. Mm. It could be an awkward hairpiece. It could be an awkward hairpiece. I'm sure there was some. It could be a leather around. jacket because they did have leather outfits and oh. leather in their outfits. So it could be a leather. It could jacket. be an old leather outfit. It could be women's of well, a younger ladies. You see, his first marriage had ended in 1866 when his first wife had died possibly succumbing to the strain of having nine children in 18 years, despite being, apparently by accounts, almost perpetually ill. Oh, I feel a pain. She was a woman of gentle disposition, and he just used her as a baby factory for the better part of two decades. By this time, their eldest had already flown the nest to become a lawyer, so Charles saw this as an opportunity to begin living the high life and spending some of the large amount of money he'd been amassing over the years. Gambling! There was a bit of gambling in there. Okay. Drink! Of course, naturally. That sounded like Father Jack, but I can't do the husky thing because I've got a cough. Mm. Well, for starters, he decided he wanted to get married again to a younger woman. That's Midlife Crisis 101. Don't they all? The lucky lady he chose was Margaret Kaisley. She was only 19. Oh, that's dirty. But she was convenient as she had formerly been working as the Davison's housekeeper. So she already knew where everything Young was. Young and convenient are not two factors for a good wife, Joe. That's minging. Well, you know, you can see his point of view. He doesn't no, want to train Joe, up a new wife. No, to f- no. She can cook his tea without asking Well, she where knows how to wield a mop. Are. Yeah, I'll give her that. But good God. Mm. Good God. Charles was between 45 and 50 at this point. I dare you perv. Or around 30 years older than his new wife, if you prefer. (laughs) 
Just to explain the previous sound effect, that was Emma doing a spit take. 30, yeah. 30 year difference. So if I was to do this, to put it into perspective, my second wife would be four at the moment. As old as our little boy. Yeah, my my second wife is just getting ready to go to secondary school. If I'm going to follow uh, the no. Davison model. No, reception. Oh, sorry, reception. If I'm going to follow the Davison model, which I'm not. Revolting. Mm. Despite this, though, the marriage did appear to be a happy one. And the unlikely couple eventually had four children of their own, of which Emily was the third. This mix of a middle-class father and working-class mother ensured that Emily was acutely aware of the injustices that working-class women faced during the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. The tales from Margaret's family often included hardship and destitution. Oh, dear. There were many members of Margaret's extended family who, you know, it was, and then they lost all their money, caught a wasting illness and died on the streets oh no or it could be poor house Mm. or it could be hand-to-mouth living and then they couldn't i think you know there would have been lots of very low income work lots of thieving lots of time in prisons on that side the new family tried to move to herefordshire a little bit outside of london i know where it is we went well he wanted to live a bit you know the country lord life but this didn't stick it did however mean that emily was homeschooled for the first 11 years of her life by a living governess she was intelligent but apparently stubborn and would demand sweets so often Mm. in exchange for doing the work she had to do Mm -hmm. that her mispronunciation of the word wheat became her nickname for the rest of her life i'm not being funny that definitely sounds like our little girl Mm. bright stubborn and we'll try and, and sugar add sweet. Yeah. <laughs> For or sure. Wheat. Wheat. She, she would sign letters. When the family returned to London, it was clear that Charlie Boy had been spending a lot more money than he'd been bringing in. Oh, Because no. money was becoming tighter. They could only afford to live in Fulham, which apparently was a bit of a hole at the time. Fulham. Mm. Where, where on the map are we, Fulham. It's where Chelsea's football ground and where Fulham's football ground is. Oh, right. It's on the edge of the Thames. It's yeah. nice nice now. It's quite a gentrified area, but apparently oh. back then it was a bit of a hole. Oh. And Emily, she couldn't have a living governess anymore, so she was enrolled in the awesomely named Miss Crookshank's Day School. Oh, for naughty girls. It just, it, it's screaming, it's screaming jolly hockey sticks. It's screaming Mallory Towers. And is that what you're feeling? And... and my all-time favourite ever, St Trinian's. Well, I don't know what she got up to while she was at Miss Crookshanks, but apparently she excelled. She did very well. Her father, seeing that she was doing really well, yeah. insisted that she spent a year in France to learn a European language in situ. Because it's always easier when you're surrounded by the language yeah, to, okay, to assimilate. I'll, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll allow that thinking. The thinking of marrying a 19-year-old when you're in your dirty years is just nasty well the idea of spending a year in france for a young girl who's apparently obsessed with literature mm. must have been a romantic notion she's like oh she's 12 which in victorian times was the cusp of womanhood <laughs> she might as well have just yeah she, she's she's started her adult life so at she, the age of she 12 can, she couldn't wait to walk the avenues of paris to be honest at the age of 12 i would have liked to have gone to france for a year mm. that sounds smashing Her enthusiasm was tempered slightly when Mm. she was told that she wouldn't be studying in Paris. She'd be Mm. studying in Dunkirk, which is a bit wetter. Bloody (laughs) hell. More bleak than Paris. Very bleak. But what is this to study in Dunkirk? Well, she's studying the French language, so I don't think it really matters. Why not send her to a nice bit? Anyway, oh, lovely little place in rural France where she could get dusty French foot and carry a baguette. She was getting windswept and interesting wet and trench foot upon her return she studied at kensington high school who provided her with a further year abroad in switzerland where she polished her french up and began learning a little bit of german because you know what the swiss are like a little bit of this a little bit of that they're happy yeah Uh, is there actually a swiss language or is it no swiss french or swiss german yes right okay At the age of 19, her academic achievements resulted in Emily being awarded a bursary to attend Royal Holloway College to study literature. This was an all-woman college that had been officially opened just five years before 
by Queen Victoria herself. Isn't that the woman's prison? Uh, Holloway is also the name of a woman's prison, but this is Royal Holloway College. So she's attending the good Holloway at the moment. Is Holloway a place? Yes. All right, okay. You said that with a lot of conviction. Yes. And if it's wrong, I will edit it out. The College Crest, in keeping with the fact that it was a woman-only institution... was a tit. ...features a knight's helmet. Because what do women love more than knight's helmets and battle? Albeit with a genie-style lamp on top, possibly to allow for knight battles. It's a very impressive crest. It's... um... There is there is some iconology mm. with a lit lamp. You're thinking of Florence Nightingale, aren't you? No, no, no. No, it's like a bit of a, a genie in the lamp lamp, not a lamp No, lamp. that's the one. A genie in the lamp There's, there's some With a icon- flame on top. Yeah, with, there's some iconology there. I think it's religious. I think it's got religious undertones. Okay, well, it was that genie lamp on top of a knight's helmet. Yeah. Because that's what women often wear when they go to study, is a full face medieval knight's helmet that's what i wore i don't know what i don't know what the girls in your school were wearing but that's exactly what i wore i you know i was rough in it it also this crest featured the vaguely inspirational motto to be rather than to seem that would appear that emily had interpreted this motto more simply as only actions matter which would be a credo that she would live by for the rest of her life emily well, it's true it, i mean there's no there's no good in just saying something Mm. Crack on and do it. Walk the walk. Walk the walk. No like no one likes the talky-talky. Do the walky-walky. Mm. Well, silent movies were about to make a big splash. So mm. lots of people were taking your, your idea. Emily was enrolled for a three-year course, but sadly only completed the first two and a half. At this point, her dad, Charles, described as a sprightly 70-year-old, suddenly dropped dead. Not so sprightly then. No, but it apparently was very immediate. Like he was in the garden running around and then suddenly... (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think he'd do some of those calisthenics. Yeah, doing all of his stretchings and jumping around. That was him. Charles, how can this be? We were meant to grow old together and only you did. (laughs) And I'm only 40. She was, yes, she was 40. Um, Although there have been some signs that money was getting tighter, you know, the, the smaller, shabbier house in Fulham being one. The family mm. was shocked when it turned out that Charles had only left them a few hundred pounds. So he'd he'd literally died right before he had to admit to his young wife that she was going to have to go back into service. Oh, what a twat. If ever there was a perfect time to die to get away from your troubles, Charles hit it. Yeah, do you not do you not think do you not think the stress of that might have uh, contributed to oh, possibly you should never lie to your wife because you will drop dead. You will die. She'll either find out or you'll die. And I don't know which one's worse, to mm. be honest. Although Margaret, she recovered from the shock and she tried to support Emily to complete her final year by moving back up north and opening a bakery. Go for it, lass. Because she's, she's a mover and a shaker. Did she make pies? I don't know that she made pies. I know that she made bread. Mrs. Lovett. She's not Mrs. Lovett. Her dad apparently ran the pub across the road. Okay. So she she, she just... I'm guessing she had a deal where she would supply mm-hmm. her dad's pub. So it all worked out quite nicely. But even with this lovely bread money coming in, mm. Emily was not able to afford the final term. Oh. When she would have taken her final exams. Oh, <laughs> so unfortunate. <laughs> just like, that is so unfortunate. Isn't it just? Uh, and instead, she had to enter the world of work as a school teacher. Because those who can do, and those who can't take their exams... Teach. Mm. This was the first time Emily was forced to confront the fact that the hardships her mother had told her about were never that far away due to the patriarchal nature of British society at the time. Oh, the doy, nothing much has changed. And Emily decided she wasn't going to just accept the status quo of a patriarchal society. Okay. And she was going to make sure that come hell or high water, she was getting that degree. So she negotiated a position as a governess that allowed her time to continue to study in the evenings. She scraped together her wage until she had just enough to cover the cost to enrol for a single term at St Hugh's College in Oxford so that she could take her final exams. Good on her. Now she chose St Hugh's for a few reasons. Boys? No, it was an all-girls college. Firstly, it had been founded in 1886 by Elizabeth Wordsworth, the grandniece of the famous poet. 
nice. specifically for women. So it seemed the perfect place to gain a literature degree, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Secondly, due to the existence of a hardship fund to help the disadvantaged women, it was cheap. Okay, fair which enough. Which was a major concern for her. Emily stayed just long enough to take her exams and she excelled. Oh, Despite the disruption, she gained a first. Oh, well done her. Sadly, though, there's a caveat to that. Oh, no. The drawback of having to take the exams at Oxford was that she didn't actually receive a degree, as Oxford didn't want to give those out to women at the time, as this mm. might give them ideas above their station. So you could do the exams and you could be um, acknowledged as working at a degree level, right. but you wouldn't actually be given the degree. See, I mean... This was a stance Oxford University maintained until 1920. I just can't. I, I'm pulling a face and I'm wincing and I'm just thinking... But I, I, I actually don't have words to put to that, so... Well, I think what we should do is we should... Snaps for Oxford for, you know, just over 100 years now, they've accepted women as equal people. Well done, Oxford University. I mean, they've not been around much more than 100 years. 500 years you know 400 years we weren't people they barely recognize us as people now it's more under duress Mm. i think that they accept us as people now Mm. well emily she she wasn't happy with the situation and um it gave her another reason to kind of hate men or the society that men you know ruled over the society that men rule over Emily, now with only a theoretical first from Oxford, Mm. found that she had no choice but to return to teaching, Mm -hmm. taking a series of jobs in schools and as a governess, slowly stewing over the injustices she had suffered. Until in 1902, with her 30th birthday approaching, Emily decided one last time to try and escape from her lower middle class situation by enrolling at the University of London, who had started giving women degrees as early as 1878. Okay, it begs the question why she didn't go there first. Because she couldn't afford it. Okay, fair enough. However, her need to balance her learning with her job meant that her second degree would take her six years to complete. She finally received an actual real degree. Hooray! A third in modern languages in 1908. Only a dicky dirt. Well, only a dicky dirt, but... The reason her standards had slipped was that in 1906, she'd become distracted by a new means by which she could help to improve not only her standard of living, but the standard of living for all women in the country. The Women's Social and Political Union, a direct action organisation that had been founded in 1903 by Emmeline Pankhurst and would be better known to history as... The Suffragette Movement. Mm. The Suffragettes, do you know where the term came from? I have read it. I cannot recall it. It was coined as a disparaging term by the Daily Mail in 1906 because the Daily Mail have, and always will be, on the wrong side of history in any given topic. Apart from Rupert. That was the Express. Then Daily Mail is awful. Yes. Thank you. At first, the direct action took the form of heckling politicians such as Winston Churchill and Sir Edward Grey at closed meetings. They would also throw stones through the windows of government buildings and hand out as many pamphlets as they could print around Westminster and other areas where the powerful and influential would be gathered. Yes. And Emily began her career with the suffragettes in an admin role. She helped to organise marches and was happy to use her literature, nearly, degree, Mm. to help write and edit the pamphlets. However, she really, really wanted to be involved on the front lines because, as the suffragettes say... Deeds, not words. Absolutely. She's writing the words, now she wants to do the deeds. Mm-hmm. And she was telling the leadership of the suffragettes that she wanted to do the deeds, like like a lot. Like, you she know. just wants to hurt the men, and to be honest, I'm behind her. She was so determined that she quit her job as a governess in late 1908 to work for the suffragette cause full time. And in March 1909, she got her chance to get her hands dirty. As part of an attempt by a group of suffragettes to deliver a petition to the Houses of Parliament, Emily noticed that she was suddenly within a few feet of the Prime Minister himself, Mm. Herbert Asquith, H.H. She approached him and viciously thrust a pamphlet into his hands. She popped a pamphlet? 
for this heinous act of handing a piece of paper to a man. Jesus wept. Emily was naturally arrested and sentenced to a month in prison. Of course she was. Though she was offered the option of a suspended sentence as long as she promised to stop trying to convince men that women deserve rights. No. She chose to serve the sentence. I'd serve the sentence. And as you can imagine, her prestige within the suffragette movement increased. Indeed. They got <clears throat> um, they got a, a, a pin badge if they served Bird. Mm. They, were, they had a full badge system for they all did. the different things. They did. We will get into that, don't worry. On July 30th, after being released, Emily was one of many suffragettes arrested for attempting to enter a music hall in the Limehouse area of London, <gasps> where the Chancellor, David Lloyd George, <gasps> was giving a speech on the budget. Doesn't he become Prime Minister? He does, yes. The, the silver-tongued Welsh wizard. Um, it was decided that women shouldn't be allowed into the meeting as they were talking about numbers, and the women might get scared. I've never heard so much bullshittery in my life. I don't like numbers, but that has nothing to do with being frightened of them. Well, for trying to listen to the talk about numbers, she was sentenced to two months in Holloway Prison. So the bad Holloway this time. The bad Holloway, so I was right. Because, let's be fair, handing a man a piece of paper is bad, but trying to listen to a man talk about numbers is doubly as bad. So it deserves double the sentence. (sighs) My life, go on. She was in Holloway along with her good friend Mary Lee. And this was the longest sentence given for the protest they both got the two months. Mm -hmm. She apparently saw this as a sign from God that the fight for women's rights was her life's work. She sang hymns in her cell at all hours and adopted the motto, Rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. And she would write it often on the walls of the cells that she stayed in. Right, so she's gone a bit wrong... She's gone a bit militant. She's all in now. Okay. She also decided that she would go on hunger strike to emphasise the fact that she believed she was a political prisoner. A different pin badge. Mm. This hunger strike, this initial one, lasted for five days before the authorities released her, reasoning that the death of a woman in custody would bring far more support to the suffragette cause. Mm. I don't don't know whether I could do a full five days without dinner. That would be... um... Very rumbly-tumbly. Well, I think I could probably manage two. Well, as a result of her five-day hunger strike, Emily lost a stone and a half and had to spend a month recuperating at her mother's bakery where Mm. she got fed up nice. Good old northern bread. Good old northern bread, get her out. But, you know, it took an entire month before she was physically strong enough to return to London and re-enter the fray. A couple of them bin lids, they'd be fine. Mm. On September the 4th, 1909, Emily was in Manchester, and she noticed that a meeting of the Liberal Party was refusing to allow women entry. Home of the bin lid. Mm. So she threw rocks at the windows until she was arrested. I don't know how many rocks she threw. She may have been there all night. I, I hope it's a lot. Mm. I hope it's like like there'd, there'd be a little mound. Mm. Like she'd pick up a rock and then there'd be she'd throw it and then it'd just land in the pile. <laughs> <laughs> like a mound of rocks. Well, she must have done some damage because she was sentenced to another two months. And this time it was at Strangeways prison. Oh, good old Strangeways. I know it well. Emily, she again opted to go on hunger strike. And this time it took only two days before the authorities caved and released her. Fair enough. With hunger strikes becoming a regular tactic for imprisoned suffragettes, the British government began looking for a means of counteracting it. Perhaps by, I don't know, compelling women to accept a basic level of nutrition? Maybe through force? No, no. Force. And it was disgusting. It was disgusting. Well, on October the 9th, Emily, along with Lady Constance Lytton, tried to stone David Lloyd George in his carriage as he travelled to a meeting in Newcastle, Mm. as you do. Unfortunately, David, he'd already been dropped off at the meeting when they pelted the carriage with stones, and they only succeeded in injuring Sir Walter... (laughs) in injuring Sir Walter Runciman, who was a shipping magnate. And not a member of the government at the time. Okay, okay. So Emily was not actually in prison for this attack. So naturally, later the same month, she threw more stones at poor old Sir Walter, mm-hmm. this time in Manchester. So the first time she'd accidentally mm-hmm. thrown rocks at this guy. Yeah. But then she'd been so aggrieved by the fact that she hadn't been arrested for it that she yeah. sought him out a couple of hundred miles across the country to throw more stones at the bugger. Like, you will arrest me She's for assaulting so Sir Walter. aggressive. I love it. 
Before this third stint in prison, though, Emily chose to write a will. Right. This was because the new tactic of force feeding had been authorised by the government and had already been used on suffragettes in Holloway Prison, mm. with a nasogastric tube being forced into their nostrils and down into the stomach. Mm. The prison officers, in strange ways, though, they didn't have access to a nasogastric tube. No, they didn't. They had a rubber hose and a bucket. No, what they did have was a steel gag that could be used to force a person's jaws open. So you forced it into the mouth and then you started ratcheting it until the mouth was held wide open. That is disgusting. Uh, a lot of the suffragettes very sort of reservedly described it as beyond the point of comfort. Um, and then they just pour liquidised food into your mouth yeah. and it was a case of swallow it or choke. Emily was subjugated to this treatment within 24 hours of starting her sentence. So way before... Starvation point. Yes. Around 130 suffragettes would be subjected to some form of force feeding before World War I. It was not only very physically damaging, with Mary Clark dying in 1910 from an mm -hmm. embolism 48 hours after being force fed, mm -hmm. and Lillian Linton having food poured directly into her lungs yeah, due to a badly did. placed tube yeah. and almost dying from that. Mm. It was also very psychologically damaging. Mm. In all, Emily would be force-fed 49 times during her life. Just disgusting. I, I just... It's, it's taking somebody's personal rights away. Mm. You can, you know, you can claim, well, maybe they're not in the right mind. You can claim you know, kind of like it's not good for them. But ultimately, if somebody has made that decision, then that is their decision to make. Well, she would go through it 49 times. So Horrific. another 48 times. But after the first time, she understandably didn't really want to go through it again. And she barricaded herself into her cell. Mm -hmm. When the prison guards realised that they couldn't gain access, they set a ladder up on the outside of the building, smashed the windows and fed in a fire hose. Emily was pelted with ice cold water for 15 minutes before the guards decided to simply break the door down. And if the heavy door fell on Emily and crushed her, so be it. Which it very nearly did. I mean, in terms of abuse of a woman, mm. do they do they not see the irony on what these of what these women are actually fighting for? Mm. They're, no. they're, they're displaying exactly what's wrong in a very graphic oh, yeah. way. It's just it's just ridiculous. Well, Emily had been sat in six inches of frozen water by this point, uh, and she was rushed from her cell to the hospital wing in blankets to be warmed up before hypothermia set in. <coughs> so this was within 24 hours of her being placed in strange ways. She had been force-fed, mm. had a fire hose turned on her, and they'd almost killed her. Yep. They did release her shortly afterwards, but not before another session of force feeding. Emily's treatment was brought up in Parliament by the Labour leader, Keir Hardy. And in 1910, she received damages of £2. However, it was made very clear that this was only for the use of the fire hose and not due to the force feeding practice, oh, as right. that was completely legal. That had been passed through Parliament. That was good. But you're not... You can force food down someone's face, but you can't turn a fire hose on them. Okay. We know where the line is. Emily had been arrested a total of five times in 1909 and had quickly become one of the most notorious of all the suffragette agitators. Mm. During her trials, she would conduct her own defence and use the opportunity to give speeches about the righteousness of her cause rather than to try and actually defend her actions. Yeah. She'd just say, of course I did it. How could I not do it? Yeah. We're being taxed without representation. Yes. We're being punished without access to, you know, being able to help make the laws. Yeah. All of this is completely wrong in a democracy. So, yes, I did throw the stones at Sir Walter and I'll do it again. I know where he lives now. I'm going, I'm going to Huddersfield because I know Sir Walter's there and I'm going to pelt him with stones and I will pelt that poor man with stones every day. <laughs> For the rest of my natural born life until we get votes. She didn't she didn't actually ever pelt Sir Walter again. No. In nineteen ten, as Prime Minister Asquith continued to delay the introduction of a woman's suffrage bill, mm. Emily decided that the best thing to do would be to ask him directly why that was the case. 
Fair dues. In April 1910, Emily walked into the Great Central Hall at the Houses of Parliament with other members of the public, as she could do in those days, yeah. hoping to catch the PM as he made his way to the Commons. When she noticed that a door was open that was marked private. With no guard in sight, she slipped into the corridor and found a heating duct, which she climbed into. Right. Unfortunately, as you might expect, the interior of the heating system was rather hot. And though Emily was provisioned with two bananas and some chocolate... <laughs> Very melted chocolate now. Yeah, she'd not, two cooked bananas. <laughs> she'd not brought any water. Oh dear. And after spending an entire night and day in the ducts, she ventured out to get some water and was confronted by a policeman. Oh no. Her plan had been to wait and then pop out uh, while Parliament was in session. Yeah. The policeman was so shocked that Emily was led out of the Houses of Parliament and sent on her way without even being arrested. So he just didn't know what to do. He's like, ah! oh my God, this hot... this lady in the walls now. <laughs> this... What's going on? <laughs> this hot chocolate covered woman. <laughs> you, smell... you smell like chocolate and bananas. <laughs> just get out of here. What are you doing, you stupid fucking woman? Is this a dirty protest? <laughs> you... He looks so dehydrated. Can't get a drink. He was just like, ah! get, get out of here, you. <sighs> Unable to ask Asquith directly, as she had in... hoped, Emily consoled herself on June 23rd by chucking lumps of rock wrapped with messages through the windows of the Crown Office, which is part of the Ministry of Justice. Yes. She was given the choice of a £5 fine or a prison sentence. And Prison. She... Well, she refused to pay the fine, but somebody else paid it on her behalf. Ugh. And she wasn't allowed to go to prison. And she was very annoyed at this. I bet it was a man. Probably. Being chivalrous. <laughs> and then he expected her to go on a date afterwards. Because he'd helped her. Yeah. In the summer of 1910, a temporary truce was agreed as the suffragettes had been led to believe that Asquith was finally going to introduce a bill for women to get the vote. Mm. So Emily, she spent the summer with her mum up north. Oh. Bit of R&R. Oh. Bit of northern climbs. Mm. Unfortunately, in November, Asquith announced that he had shelved the plan for good. And Emily was back in London immediately, like, as soon as he sort of put the kibosh on it... <laughs> She was right there outside of Parliament like a meerkat. I can imagine he literally put put the paper on the table and she'd appear. Mm. She appeared at the window like Cathy and with her in height. Yeah. <gasps> but she was back to help organise a protest march for the 18th of November 1910. This march would become known as Black Friday. 300 women protesters were attacked by policemen and members of the public. Yeah. Serious injury and sexual assault took place, and at least two women died as a result of their injuries. Oh, it was disgusting. So rather than trying to control the crowd, mm. the police just waded in mm. and started beating. And as soon as the, the crowd of angry men saw that the police were just going gung-ho, they took it as, oh, we're allowed to. Mm, this is actually, there is there is a mark of respect, actually, in the People's Museum of Manchester with regards to women's suffrage because of, obviously, the links to strange ways. But, um, mm. and there was a lot of suffragette movement in Manchester and I think probably a lot of the other larger cities yeah. as well. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, there's, if you do want to go in... Uh, you are up north near Manchester. I suggest to take a trip because it's actually quite interesting mm. to go there. And, and uh, Black Friday is marked actually in that as well. Emily, she wasn't initially arrested for her part, but mm. that didn't suit her. So she was arrested the following day for smashing more windows at the Houses of Commons. Windows. Windows. She was sent to Holloway and force fed again during an eight day stay. The brutality of Black Friday led to the suffragettes becoming more reliant on vandalism rather than mass protests as a means yeah. of making their point. Mm -hmm. An idea that Emily took to with more gusto than practically anyone else. And by gusto, yeah. I mean she started setting fires. I was going to say it was fires. Mm. That was the next step. Though firstly, she broke into Parliament again as a means of avoiding the 1911 census. Because a, um, a lot of the suffragettes felt that if they weren't being treated as people, they weren't going to be counted as people on the census. It was a good way of protesting yeah. that they felt like they weren't being treated as real people. Yeah. She found a cupboard um, to sneak away into in Parliament, as you do. You know, there's, it's full of cupboards. And she got herself in, she closed the door, and then she realised it was one 
that you couldn't open from the inside. So she was basically stuck in a cupboard. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I don't know how she felt about the fact that she was found by a cleaner um, before the census had actually been taken. Oh, no. There's a, There's got to be a mixture of relief because there's always that worry of how long has it been since someone's been in this cupboard? What if this corridor's not very used? There are bits of the Houses of Parliament when you watch... you remember the programme about when they were restoring it? Yeah, I do, yeah. And they were like, well, we've not been down here. We we know where the key is, but we've not been down here for 50 years. <laughs> if it hadn't been for this cleaner, mm. it might have been on that show they were opening and going, oh my word, there's a there's a mummified corpse in here. <laughs> she's she's wearing votes for women. What the fuck's going on? What happened? Were they having the suffragettes killed? <laughs> Just quietly disappeared? Did they keep one as a slave? What's going on? Uh, but as she was found before the census had been finished, oh. uh, she was duly added to the census by an annoyed official in the oh. Houses of Parliament there and then. How dare you try to avoid it, you you woman. You bloody rapscallion lady. Although this did lead to a successful protest of sorts because... She had already actually been added by her landlady to the census as part of her household. So she appears on the census twice. Oh, brilliant. So she did stick two fingers up, literally. Yeah. But she, well, I mean, you can call it, you know, um, she fell backwards into a win because she mm. completely failed at her task of not wanting to be on the census by appearing twice. Mm. But yeah, it, it, it did muck up the numbers ever so slightly. Just a little bit. So that's good. In December of 1911, she started setting post boxes on fire. Okay. She would soak a cloth in paraffin and light it just as she was approaching the slot, jamming it in and then retiring to a nearby cafe to watch as the smoke started to billow. Because in terms of ways of disrupting the running of the country without a, a great risk to life. Yeah. You know... The Victorian era, especially around this time, it was still, you know, the amount of letters being sent and the oh, amount of important... Oh, God, yeah. You had, like, in some high traffic areas, you had up to four four posts a day. Mm. You had your early, your first post, which was, like, your super early morning post. You had your mid-morning post. You have you had your lunchtime post. And then you had an afternoon one as well. Mm. So you, had, you did have... Like literally up to four posts a day, and you can see it. It's an it's a bit of an anachronism now here and in the USA about the the level of sentence that crimes against male attract. Yeah, because in America, any anything it's all federal. It's always a federal crime if yeah. you attack the post. Yeah, and it, it it harks back to this day when it was it was the major means of communication. Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I kind of like it because I love getting letters. Mm. It's the physical. Me artifact isn't it yeah well it was definitely um it was definitely a tactic that got attention let's put it that way yeah and it also led to a six-month prison sentence though only after she had told the press what she had done as the police were reluctant to give her any more publicity so they figured out that she was doing it right and when she said are you going to send me to prison they went no No. we're going to pretend that this never happened Mm -hmm. so she went to the press and went i am the london post box Bomber. Well, it's not quite a bomb, was it? The 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 bombs wouldn't come for another little while yet. Mm. Although this is definitely leading oh, yeah. down that route. Of, the letter bombs. Mm. Once the story was out, copycat attacks began to occur across the country. Brilliant. The negative publicity, though, led to a break with the Pankhursts, who began to distance themselves from Emily's increasingly violent and dangerous tactics. Even well, this slightly insane Pankhurst. Uh, the slightly insane Pankhurst, I believe, had already been shipped off to Australia by this time. Fair enough. She was probably all for it. <coughs> and forgive me, I can't recall her name. No. But I know that there was one of them and she was a bit outrageous. Yeah, and they were like, go over to Australia. So she she did she, she started um, a suffragette movement in Australia and then a white nationalist movement in Australia. She went, she went full circle and became almost a Nazi. I, I I don't know enough about it. All I know is that there was there was one that was a bit more right on than all the other right on women. Well, the thing was, she kind of took it too far. The Pankhurst felt, especially at this point, that they were getting somewhere. Mm. And whereas at the start she'd been a great sort of publicity, mm. you know, she she got a lot of publicity, Emily, for the stuff she was mm. doing. Now mm. they were like, well, actually, we're trying to say that we're 
we're trying to move back towards the center. It's like we're trying to reconcile. So you give, you go to your extreme point, and then you start to come back, and you look more reasonable. And she yeah. was, she was just carrying on further and further down that militant line, and they're like, mm, we don't. No, she's not really one of us anymore. See, I don't, I don't <clears throat> recall the name, but I have a nasty feeling. I know who she is, mm. one way or the other. There's, there's two possibilities of who she is. And I think one is more likely. Well, let's see if you're right. Right. Can you give me a one word indicator and we'll check at the end? Can I give you a one word indicator for both of them? No. You option give, A and no, option B. No, you give B. me the option that you think is most likely and let's see if you're right. Horse. Right. So you've, you've put down your word. The word is horse, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, no. Can I, can I, give, you my, can I give you my wild card? Okay, so your 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 primary option is horse. My primary option is horse. Yes, and your wild card option? Rivington. Rivington. Horse. We're almost back to three words. It's like the first year all over again. I know. But yes, yeah, so she's she's being slowly pushed to the side. Mm. Because she started with post boxes, but the problem is once you put an idea into people's heads, they keep wanting to one up each other. Yeah. And the burning down of sports stadiums due to the masculine connotations. And the mm. setting of bombs at the Houses of Parliament and other symbols yep. of authority began in earnest while Emily was serving her sentence in Holloway. The four years of near constant physical and mental strain was beginning to tell for Emily. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to process, huh? After being force-fed multiple times from February to June 1912, despite not going on hunger strike this time, yeah, yeah. and with her health failing... Oh, Emily decided that it was time for her to take on the role of martyr. And she justified this by saying, one big tragedy may save many others. Mm. It was the justification she used for her actions on June 10th, 1912, when she walked to the top of an iron staircase in Holloway Prison and threw herself off into the void of a 40-foot drop to the floor below. Oh, Jesus Christ. Luckily or unluckily, depending on your point of view, Emily caught on the wire netting. She scrambled to the edge and threw herself forwards, landing on her head from a height of around 10 foot. The fall was not enough to kill Emily, but it did cause brain damage and left her in constant pain for the rest of her life because she cracked a couple of vertebrae doing it. Oh, for fuck's sake. She was force-fed again that afternoon. I have no words. Mm. I, I I literally have no words for the brutality against women fighting for their rights, which is why, ladies, and those who identify as such, fucking vote. Because right. women died for this. Well, she's not died. She's just no, but people did die brain for it. She finally left Holloway for the last time. On July 8th, 1912. She'd lost over two stone. She was approaching 40 years old. She was in constant pain. Mm-hmm. And she'd been disowned by the movement that she'd given all of this blood, sweat yeah. and tears in service of. Mm. And even worse, her attempted suicide had made her even more ostracised. Yeah. So she felt like she was making a final noble sacrifice well back back way back then you know acts acts like that were were seen as you know they were seen so negatively well the thing to remember through all of this is this woman was a very devout christian Mm. you know she felt that she'd been given this cause by god she went to church regularly so the idea that she would contemplate suicide just goes to show the the strength of feeling that she had for the cause yeah considering, you know, how that was viewed. Mm, mm. Understandably, it took Emily a long time to recover. Mm. And the cumulative trauma she had been experiencing was clearly taking a toll on her mental health. It didn't help that now that she'd been disavowed, she Mm. was also being used as a convenient scapegoat by the Pankhursts, who named her as the probable bomber of David Lloyd George's house in February 1913. Oh, right. This was apparently... Well, the bombing definitely occurred yeah. in retaliation to uh, him leading the opposition to a woman's franchise bill. However, mm. there is no clear evidence um, 
that Emily had anything to do with it, other than the fact that she she absolutely hated Lloyd George. Yes. As in November 1912, she had horsewhipped a Baptist preacher at a railway station in Aberdeen after wrongly <laughs> thinking it was Lloyd George. Amazing. Yes. There's something to have on your CV. <laughs> What were, you, what were you doing in November 1912? I was horsewhipping a Baptist <laughs> minister. Why? He looked a bit like a Welsh politician. He looked like David Lloyd George. That led to a 10-day prison sentence, which I think is amazing because you'd assume that burning a letterbox, burning a postbox... Burning a postbox and... Whipping a Baptist whipping minister. a priest. Whipping a priest on a railway st- <laughs> station. <laughs> In full view of the good people of Aberdeen going, what is she doing? And why is she shouting, damn you, Lloyd George? <laughs> oh, I do love her. I love, I mean, it goes her. I show... love her feisty balls. It goes to show, you know, that brain feisty, damage I was talking about. Balls. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her recognition may have been a bit out at this point. Yeah. She's seen Lloyd George everywhere. She saw him on a slice of toast. <laughs> Which she then horsewhipped. <laughs> annihilated but the other no thing she is, just she just set it on fire the other thing is <coughs> but the other thing is why has she got a horse whip she's getting on a train i like to think she just carries it under her petticoats for any man that she doesn't like she just beats the shit out of him with i'm a now whip. seeing her a little bit like a gender bended indiana jones just like <laughs> that's how she Do keeps getting into the houses that of parliament kind of whip i was i was thinking like a jockey whip Oh, like a that's a riding crop, isn't it? Yeah, like a horse that. whip is actually the one with the sticky bit, and then there's a kind of a long tail, you know, for when you're doing coaching so horses. That's even more impressive. So it's less a beating and more just. Yeah, and he's going, "Ow, ow, stop it! Who's doing that? Oh, it's you on the other side of the fucking platform." <laughs> well, that way he can't get back. Yeah, there's, you could, you no could right literally do it over the train line you Lloyd yeah George bastard Emily was clearly on a self-destructive course yeah she was a this... bit tapped by this point bless her but it's no it's no great surprise yeah. is it and this reached its end in June 1913 with the act for which she would be remembered to history with dwindling finances constant pain and having been disavowed by the organization she had dedicated her life to mm. Emily Wilding Davison made her way to the Epsom Derby on June 4th, 1913. The day before, she'd happened to visit a statue of Joan of Arc Mm. and commented on how glorious her death had been Mm -hmm. for a noble cause. So nothing, no red flags had been raised. No. She did have a return ticket in her pocket and she was clutching a rosette in the suffragette colours. Throughout the afternoon... She was milling around. She was marking her race card. Yeah. To all the world, appearing to be just a normal punter. Yeah. She had made plans for the rest of the week uh, with some of her friends who, you know, were still rooting for her. Yeah. Mary Lee being one of them. Yeah. And then the main race came around. The Epsom Derby itself. Mm-hmm. It was underway and the King's horse, Anma, Mm. wasn't doing too well. Despite the king and queen being in attendance, the Mm. horse had not risen to the occasion. No. The pack had split in two, halfway round, and Anne had been on the wrong side of that break and was losing ground fast. It didn't look like the king was going to get the win that day. No. As the horses crested the hill before the final straight, Emily Davison allowed the lead group to pass before ducking under the barrier and walking onto the racetrack, directly mm. into the path of the king's horse. Yeah. She leapt at the bridle and was knocked to the ground, causing the horse to fall in the process. Mm. Newsreels had begun covering the derby two years prior, so the moment is captured on film. It is. It's quite sad. Emily Davison died four days later from a fracture at the base of her skull. Mm. Although that wasn't before she received a lot of hate mail from men, would you believe? No. Most of it saying that she was a disgrace, a traitor, don't know how she was a traitor, um, and that she deserved to die. So at least they got their wish. Mm. Both the horse and the jockey, Herbert Jones, survived. Mm -hmm. Though Jones was racked with guilt for the rest of his life. 
yeah, I, I, truthfully, I don't know anything about him, and I've always thought that that is is quite sad. I always feel, you know, kind of like you know when you you hear tragedies of people who've come to the end of what they can cope with, and you know they throw themselves in front of trains mm. and off um, motorway bridges in front of cars and lorries and stuff. And my heart goes out to the people who are, are just doing what mm. they do, and it happens to them as well. Herbert Jones, he did lay wreaths. Um, with Emily's name mm. on it he mm. did say you know he felt terrible about what had happened and he did actually eventually commit suicide himself oh lord above. and people try to link the two things but he committed suicide shortly after the death death of his own wife of mm. I think it was 50 years oh wow his hearing had gone completely and he was going blind yeah and his family you know his surviving I think it was his son said it had nothing to do no. With what happened on this day, he was he was just done with life at that point. Yeah. He had nothing to look forward to and he just wanted to be with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Emily dies. Mm-hmm. And what's not reported is that two weeks later, uh, there was a copycat. No. Uh, only this time, it was at the Gold Cup, the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Okay. And it was a man. And because it was a man... Um, he obviously ran on holding a suffragette flag, but also holding a gun because, you know... Because man. Because man. He luckily didn't fire the gun. Uh, he was winged by a horse uh, and he survived. He ended up in a mental institution, would you believe? Christ knows what his deal was. Uh, you know, reports seem to say that he wanted to commit suicide and this was just a way that he could hopefully gain some notoriety from it rather than that he wow. was an avowed suffragette sympathiser. Mm-hmm. In death, Emily was retroactively painted as a suffragette martyr. Yeah. And, she, you know, she's great now for the for the Pankhurst because yeah. they can completely control her yes. and her narrative. Yeah. And her funeral on June 14th was attended by over 50,000 people with a suffragette guard of honour. Mm-hmm. Just over a year later, with the outbreak of World War I, an amnesty was announced. And by 1918, the Representation of the People Act provided limiting voting rights to some women yes. but it was the thin end of the wedge oh it very much was the thinnest wedge and as you know things continued and you needed those women to be <laughs> stepping into traditional male roles because we'd killed all the males by sending them to dunkirk <laughs> <coughs> back, full we sent, circle we're, we're back at them dunkirk to, to northern france yeah which emily could have told you is a muddy shithole yeah it eventually led to equality at least in terms of voting rights we're still not even there i think that's the thing that hurts the no, most we're, we're equal in terms of voting rights in terms of voting rights but but let me tell you as you know i mean everyone says we're the fairer sex in what respect do we understand fairness but we're not given it i think they're talking about your physical beauty i think they're talking i think you're talking out your assholes all you men it, it trust me it's no fun being a woman in a lot of ways it, it's it, it's no fun we aren't equal and you know you the fight's still there hmm. always and it's yeah i'm not i'm not saying i'm just saying in terms of voting rights i'm not saying anything else no i know i'm just you know. and that's only in law you know emily wilding davison remains a controversial figure to this day she and the other more militant suffragettes describe themselves as terrorists which makes it hard to argue that they were anything but that's what they wanted to be that's what they were trying to achieve with the fires and the bombings and the militancy. Yeah, but is it terrorists in what we now understand terrorism to be? Having, you know, in our lifetime, we truly have witnessed, you know, maybe not firsthand, but within our own country and within, you know, the on the world's media and within the world's news, terrorism on a completely different scale to what they they were saying. Can you just say, oh, well, it's just grown exponentially? 
Well, they were, they were bombing sporting I'd... venues. I don't know how you could describe that as anything but terrorism. They were bombing people's houses to try and get those people to agree with them. The righteousness of the cause, I'm not arguing. I don't know because I know I'd be with them. Yeah, that's I the know problem. You would. So I don't. I don't. Um, yeah. Mm, well, this is. You know, most people are introduced to the idea of the suffragettes. Let's be fair with Mary Poppins and a lovely jaunty song by Mrs. Banks. They're clearly they're clearly soldiers in petticoats. They are. Sister Suffragette, which is lovely. It's a beautiful. I would was... sing more, but today, unfortunately, as our listeners are sighing a great sigh of relief, um, my voice is so croaky that I I can't sing for you. And hindsight is twenty twenty. Emily and the more militant-minded women like her had no idea that in nineteen fourteen total war across Europe would break out and that would do what their agitation couldn't. Yes, you know, in a way that they, yeah, in a way that they couldn't achieve it. Mm. Not only, you know, doing something that they, they physically couldn't achieve, but in in a way that you would never see coming mm. as well. So, yeah. But I mean, the fight's still, the fight's still, you know, here, you know, the, the fight in the UK at the moment for, you know, equal pay and for, you know, within the within the movement with Mo- mother pucker you've probably seen her she's been on the tv she's been on the radio she's in the news she's a heart radio presenter um fighting for um equality within the workplace in terms of um flexible working mm. and stuff like that because you know we were sold this lie back in i reckon the probably starting in the 60s but it definitely took off in the 80s that women you can do the jobs that men can do first and foremost you're not going to get fucking paid for it and uh, secondly sold the lie that you can have it all no you can't have it all that's the problem that's the problem you can't give a hundred percent in your life to everything it's got to be split so the fight is still there and you know, if like me, you you know you're you're into kind of, you know, fighting the fight for equality. <clears throat> there are still outlets for it. Oh, there always will be. You know, until we get it, will we ever get it? Don't know, but it's nope. worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's worth fighting for. Will will there ever be a truly equal society? Probably not. The source. The main source, I should say, for this week's episode was mm-hmm. Emily Wilding Davison, The Martyr Suffragette by yeah. Lucy Fisher. It's oh. well worth a read. It gives a lot more detail of everything we've talked about. And it, I, I, I like the fact that it paints this woman as something more complicated than just... The woman who jumped um, in yeah. front of a horse, which is what everyone... A militant knows. who did something stupid, because she wasn't a militant no. who did something stupid. She was a person who felt that she'd been backed into a corner where she only had one option. Mm. Mm. And we've we've got no idea to this day whether she intended to uh, kill herself, whether she intended to it to just be another form of protest and no. that she wanted to carry on. I mean, from, from the reading of that book and from... Um, the sort of evidence because Lucy Fisher like I said Emily Davidson was quite prolific in her own writing she wrote a lot of essays Mm. about Mm. the cause she wrote a lot of letters to the Guardian who printed them all I think Mm. it was 29 in total Mm. that she wrote sort of explaining her actions and the actions of people like her but from all of that and all of her personal letters it does seem like she was preparing to make that sacrifice yeah yeah does it does that book touch on what happened it happened at Rivington, which is kind of <clears throat> no probably as local as we're going to get in terms of the suffragette movement as far as I am aware because no, I think the zenith of the bombing campaign was nineteen thirteen the summer of mm. so it it kind of it, it, the scope of the book doesn't quite cover the the major part of the bombing campaign mm. Because once they had a martyr, well, I say a martyr, that lady who died of an embolism was also held up as a yeah. as a martyr. Was yeah. it Mary Davis? I want to get that right. Um, 
but you know this was this was a massive scale and they they definitely bigged you know uh, emily up as a martyr after the event mm. and she was totally in terms of her reputation rehabilitated into the look at this noble woman from a working class background because it kind of mm. poor washed out her dad and it was you know the daughter of a baker mm. from mm. you know up north who gave everything to try and help the cause mm. well seeing though it doesn't cover it mm. if you do want to learn about some more northern suffragettes mm. heavily suggest that you can um research this yourself um rivington pike and the levishume estate lord levishume um the suffragettes burnt down his house mm. And the remains of it, you can just see the flooring now when you go up to Rivington Pike. And it looks like a chessboard. But you can buy um, a really good book. I don't know what the title of the book is, but I have read it. You can buy a really good book on it. Mm. Um, I'm all right with them burning down someone's house up Rivy. I'm all right with them trying to set fire to Preston North End. I am not okay with the fact that they tried to burn down Blackburn Rovers Football Club. Well, maybe that's that was where a, you draw the line. That was a line. bridge too far. Fair enough. For me, I'm all for women's rights, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. I even married one. <laughs> you you married a woman's right. <laughs> I, I married a woman's rights, but they can't burn down my football club. I'll make sure we don't. Thank you. Hi there, it's Emma, chief organizer at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.